start out with a poem that's relatively new. Uh, it's it's not quite a year old. Um, it's called "Do They Own You," and uh, it has an epigraph. Uh, one of these days, I'm free this afternoon till four. I'm just about free. You free for the fourth? Did you buy one and get one free? I'm free on Friday. I think it's a free-for-all. I'll be free for a while, but not tomorrow. I'm free most weekdays this week. After that, I probably won't be free. You're going to be free pretty soon? I got this one free. Did you get that one free? I'm pretty free, but not that free. Are y'all free or not? I'm freer than he is. Is this a free day? I'll be free after six. Did you get the free one or did you have to buy one? Can you get tomorrow free? I'm going to be free all day. Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 228. Thanks so much for joining me. Before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been a continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this. We love poetry and know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Wherever you can do to help spread poetry around the internet, especially YouTube, which we love the most, I think, uh, would be much appreciated. We are also streaming on Facebook and uh, X, of course. So if you uh, click on there, uh, feel free to share and uh, click the like button. It really helps. Like I said, tonight's guest is Tim Siebels. Uh, Tim is the author of seven collections of poetry, including Body Moves, Hurdy Gurdy, Hammerlock, Buffalo Head Solos, Fast Animal, which won the Theodore Rothke Memorial Poetry Prize um, and was nominated for the 2012 National Book Award. His newest book, uh, his newest full-length book, I should say, is Voodoo Libretto, which is right here. It was published by Entruscan Press. It's a great poem to start out with, especially on Martin Luther King Day, as it is, Tim. Um, Let's let's start talking about the beginning. You know, how much was Martin Luther King an inspiration for for becoming a poet? I don't know whether uh, Dr. King was an inspiration for my interest in poetry. That would have come from... People like uh, The Last Poets or Nikki Giovanni or Langston Hughes, you know, when I was a young guy. But uh, King was a huge figure in my life in terms of how I think about race and unity and the possibilities of human beings, you know, being compassionate and kind to each other. Uh, My father was in the March on Washington when I was a little boy. Um, so King was a huge figure in my life in terms I, I have a picture of him in my wallet that I've had since I was in college. It's the same picture. Um, he's just a huge figure in terms of how I like to try to think about what it means to be human in a, in a multicultural society. And, and of course, in a polycultural world, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's King's inspiration to me is more about how I imagine uh, my full humanity more than he would be an inspiration for poetry. Yeah, but there there is such rhetorical beauty and so much poetry in those speeches. Um, oh, God, I love yeah. them. Well, let's hear another poem. Um, what do you sure. want to read next? I'll, I'll, read, um, I'll read Riddle. It has an epigraph by W.S. Merwin, who was a huge influence on the way I think about 
music and poems and uh and also he among others but he was an important mystical influence on me too i think merwin especially in the earlier work like the lice and carrier of ladders and moving target you know he just had a, a kind of you know cosmic kind of vision or something that i was very taken by anyway this is riddle um the epigraph is by merwin he says from what we cannot hold the stars are made when i saw the forest it was late afternoon the sky held the color of something almost forgotten i pulled off the road found a gravel path sloping toward the trees it had to be the light that remembered my last saturday at y camp freshly husked corn roasting on the cob and all the nervous cicadas calming down for dark because i didn't know the handle could be hot i burned myself pulling a skillet from the fire and was cursing quietly when a blonde boy i hadn't met told me to put my fingers in his milk it's okay he said won't hurt as much i was 12 stuck on the step between childhood and puberty just starting to understand that i liked being alone and trying the riddle of how to be a person who might turn into an adult at the time i did not have these words but on this drive i'd been wondering about what i've become and how i live in this country it all came back the red and white carton with a bent straw in it my fingers starting to blister then the white kids shy shrug of a smile in the forest it was already night yeah it's a great example of um the just the way your poems leap and move from you know seriousness to humor um and that great last line i love that uh that uh, in the forest it was already night which is such a right. such a big leap transition it's almost like the cut in a haiku and that was riddle from tim siebel's uh can you talk about your your writing process a little bit tim like what is it like for you sitting down and sort of confronting the blank page and then how do you sculpt a poem from there well um i write often um probably five or six mornings of the week i'm trying to write um even when i was teaching since my classes were in the afternoon i could get up i get up early because i also had to grade and prepare for class but i'd get up early and i'd probably spend a couple hours maybe 3 if i was having an especially rich day um you know working on poems just trying things but where they come from is hard to say i mean we all have an array of concerns it's some days you wake up and you think man i have any idea what i'm going to write about and some days you wake up and you think there's a dream in your head and you say there's some image or something that you really want to get down 
that poem, for example, actually started as it is described. Uh, I was driving down the highway and I saw a forest, you know, as we often do when you're way driving way out in the country. And for reasons that are still not clear to me, I thought about that day at Y Camp. I hadn't thought about that in years and years and years. But it, it just, I was like, oh man, I remember walking into the woods of Y Camp and all this stuff just came back. And so when I have something like that that's so clear, then the question is just a matter of, you know, how to get it down and really, you want the language to be evocative, but you also want it to be clear. You know, I want, I don't want people to hear any, if possible, I don't want people to hear my poems and say, what, or what's it about? You know, I want that to be, I want the subject matter to be relatively obvious. Now, the levels of feeling in the poem may be more complex, or the perspectives that come through may ask you to think a little bit more, you know, um, than something simple. But, uh, but I don't want there to be a, ever to be a question about what is at stake in the poem. Mm -hmm. So when I'm writing, you know, the first thing, of course, you know, you try to get what I call um, when I'm writing just a good take. Doesn't mean it's finished or anything by any means. It just means that it feels like there is a shape that is trying to be born. Mm -hmm. And then it's just a matter of making the choices that allow the poem to, to live on its own terms. Um, and that's really what it comes down to. And so, yeah, many, many drafts. I'm not a, a lunatic draft person. I mean, probably many of my poems would be 14 to 25 drafts. Oh, wow. I, have, mm -hmm. I have written poems, of course, that are 40 to 60 drafts. If you really are, if you if you really think there's something in there and you think I just have to get it right, you just keep writing and rewriting and rewriting and making your corrections and then rewriting and correct, you know. Um, but generally speaking, I'm reasonably patient with myself. So if I get a good idea or something that feels urgent, for lack of a better term, I, if I can get it down, if I can get what I think is a, a good take down, I might not come back to, I may come back to it the next day, but I won't just, you know, jump on it and just every day till I get it right. And I very rarely do that. I can write it for a while and mm -hmm. maybe leave it for a couple of days and come back and, you know, work, maybe I'll work on something else that I've already had drafted. And uh, but so bit by bit, you know, the poem, at least it feels to me that the that the, the 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 essence of the poem is revealed with patience. Mm -hmm. When I was much younger, I felt like I was more in a hurry. You know, I was writing four drafts, thinking that was a lot. You know, mm -hmm. um, but as I as I got older, and I certainly you know you read people and you love, you know you know you know you read the poets that are amazing, and you think, man, I wanna I wanna write poems that have that kind of resonance. And you realize, I mean, one way or another, that 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 kind of work takes time. And so I, I've become more and more patient as I've gotten over. So the essence of my process is drafts, patience, thinking, drafts. You know, you just keep going until you feel that you've exhausted the possibilities of the poem. Mm -hmm. 
Um, well, it's a great explanation. I love that idea of the first or uh, a good take. Uh, as, instead of a, you know, if people say sloppy first draft or whatever, but having mm-hmm. a good take that you want to come back to seems like an important thing. Um, mm-hmm. Do you find that, that that good take has most of the the turns and leaps you'll make in the poem, or do you find yourself adding them later in the draft? Is, is a draft mm-hmm. sort of a refining and a polishing, or are you still generating new surprises? Often the, the revision process is the process during which a lot of the moves are discovered. Um, now, occasionally, and you know this, you'll have one of those days where a poem will almost come to you whole. I mean, sometimes you're, you're close and maybe you, five drafts or six drafts really is enough. But that's pretty rare. Most of the time I'll find something and think there's a feeling and there's something driving this thought. And so I try to, if I'm lucky, I get enough of the language down that when I come back to it, the feeling is is returned to me. And I think, okay. And that is the fuel that drives me further and further into the piece. But yeah, usually some of those turns and surprises, they come, you know, after draft, draft after draft after draft, you start to discover maybe the, the real, the, the true heart of the poem. And then um, certain things you can do that you think sharpen or sharpen the focus or you know, intensify um, the the circumstances of the piece so that, I mean, you hope what we what we all what, what I hope for anyway, is that someone reading the poem will have an experience of the poem that is at least something like the experience that I had that drove me to write the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a really great way to put it. Uh, let, let's hear another poem. Um, sure. What's next? Um. I'll do I'll do something formal. This is uh the Runaway Blues Villanelle. I, I I love the blues and I also love the Villanelle form, and they're both uh rooted in the uh work songs of poor people. Uh the blues, of course, is is rooted in field hollers of black American slaves. Um, you know, repetitions to make the workday more more bearable. Um, the Villanelle is rooted, of course, in the in the similar circumstances of Italian peasants. Uh, they'd be working in the fields with very little, you know, money or, or or hope, and they would sing these repeating lines, you know. So I think the blues and the Villanelle are are, are like first cousins, and so there's so I wrote, I've written a series of blues Villanelles, probably forty or so. Who knows. This is called Runaway Blues Villanelle. I should say this. I make reference to Omar Sosa, who is a great jazz pianist from Cuba. Um, some of you may already know who Funkadelic, uh, the, the Funkadel- Parliament Funkadelic, that's mm-hmm. George Clinton's band. Uh, if you don't, just look up Funkadelic. You'll hear what they sound like. Otherwise, I think most, most of this is pretty clear. Runaway Blues Villanelle. Maybe we could all just fly away. Time will say nothing, but I told you so. Not sure what else time can really say. Not sure I want to write this anyway. Woke up feeling like, I just don't know. Maybe we could all just walk away. No no use running hot and yelling all damn day. Mom told me, 
No one monkey stops the show. Guess she didn't know what else to say. Maybe I should put my mind on layaway. Can't turn it off. Can't, tear, can't tell where it'll go. Think I might just turn away. Some of y'all go to church and pray. I look at the sky. I just don't know. Maybe we should all just run away. Gotta try something, come what may. When that goes wrong, they'll shrug, I told you so. Ain't that some worthless shit to say? People worry about who's straight, who's gay. The body's the arrow, the heart's the bow. Someday we'll all just fly away. When I go, just let Omar Sosa play. Then rock on my soul at a Funkadelic show. You give me half a chance, I'd get away. When you think about it, same thing time would say. Yeah, and that was Runaway Blues Villanelle. And uh, you know, one of the many blues villanelles that Tim Siebel writes. And the, um, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between poetry and, and, and the blues? I mean, there's a way, you know, if you, people who don't read much poetry come to it, and they always complain outside of it that there's so much sort of darkness and sort of blues, really, in poetry. And there's a way that both of them, it seems to me, are releasing like um, energy or altering energy through using your body or something like that. There's something to it that has a lot in common, would you say? And, and that the subject matter and, and what we're doing so often with poetry. Do you, do you think that's the oh, case? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, lyrics and poems, I mean, song lyrics and poems are two branches of the same tree, you know, right? It's just that with song lyrics, melody, rhythm and, and rhythm and harmony are part of the meaning of the of the piece. Um, if you take a song away from its music, there are only a few that still work just as words. Whereas poems are in most cases have to be their own music. The words themselves have to be the music that and the rhythm and the harmony, if you will, uh, that 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 let the thing live in the air. Um, so to me, there's a definite relationship between poetry and song lyrics. Um, the difference being, of course, is that for me anyway, a poem allows you to get into, especially free verse, but all poems allow you to go places where the limitations of a song, you know, people have to be, rel often seem to have to be very simple in their lyrics. Now, this is not always true. Mm -hmm. I mean, Joni Mitchell, I would never say was a super simple lyricist, but many, many songs that are popular, if we listen to them out without their music, there is, they're pretty thin things usually. Um, but if, in terms of the blues, yeah, well, of course, blues, are rooted in sorrow, right? Blues are rooted rooted in bad times, but of course the music, as you were saying, Tim, transforms that bad feeling into a good feeling. I mean, that's what makes it kind of, blues kind of a sacred gesture, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think of poetry the same way that even the, even the saddest poem, I mean, part of why we love poems, even the really sad poems, is that we're able to identify some of our own and suffering and realize that it's shared, that other people have suffered similarly. 
that's what gives it its power. It's the same thing even with instrumental music. I mean, when I listen to it, like my favorite piece by Bach is this is the stuff you the pieces that he wrote for solo violin it is uh, the partita number two in d minor the chaconne which is the last movement now i didn't know bach and bach didn't know me but i feel the absolute truth in that violin you know um particularly the version that Zeno Franciscati does. If you dig Bach out there, my friends, and you can find Zeno Franciscati's version of the Partita Number no. Two in D Minor, that violin is just—it's just too powerful. Sometimes, you know, I just—it's all I can do not to burst into flames when I listen to it. Um, and so I think there is that in poetry too. Uh, you know, take—you know, take. I mean, there's so many different kinds of poems one thinks about, but the sad poems, poems that deal with death or, or loss. I mean, I don't read those pieces to become more sad and, and feel more vulnerable to the whims of the world. You, you read them because you want to understand that what you feel is, is not only yours and, and that someone can give a shape to your, your emotions that you may be previously could not. You just were under the governance of some strange, sad anxiety. But then suddenly you read, you know, you hear a stanza or a particular line and you say, that's what I feel. That is the thing I would have said in exactly the same way that we listen to our favorite songs. You know, I listen to Sade Adu, for example. Um, uh, some of you probably know her Smooth Operator is a song that she may, might be most famous for, but she's sung so many beautiful things. And uh, and uh, I listen to that voice, and I feel great angst and sorrow in it, but there's such beauty in it that it still lifts you. It still lifts you. And that's what I hope for my own poems, and that's certainly what I've gotten from the poems that I love, you know, some kind of lift or or an insight that allows me to to feel more awake or more clear mm -hmm. on my own life. Yeah, yeah, I love that phrase you said, a, a spiritual gesture. You know, I always think of poems as prayers, and people say that a lot, but that's sort of a loaded term. Um, but but yes. a spiritual gesture is a is much less, um, you know, claiming its own significance at the same time. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, without claiming any kind of you know religious religiosity either. I, I like the way you put that because it really does feel it's some way that we connect with the deeper parts of self and parts of the collective consciousness or whatever it is in the universe that that, yes, that great mystery. Yes. Yeah, and it's a conduit to that that we're doing, a sort yeah. of prayer to that, but a spiritual gesture. I love that. Yeah. Um, let's hear another poem. All right. I'll, I'll go into a whole different direction. This is a, this is a persona poem in the voice of the Roadrunner. <laughs> it's called Commercial Break, Roadrunner, Uneasy. If I didn't know better, I'd say the sun never moved ever. That somebody just pasted it there and said the hell, to hell with it. But that's impossible. After a while, you have to give up 
those conspiracy theories. I get the big picture. I mean, how big can the picture be? I actually think it's kind of funny. That damn coyote always scheming, always licking his skinny chops. And me, pure speed, the object of all his hunger, the everything he needs. Talk about impossible. Talk about the grass is always greener. I am the other side of the fence. You've got to wonder at least a little if this could be a setup with all the running I do, the desert, the canyons, the hillsides, the desert. All this open road has got to lead somewhere else. I mean, that's what freedom's all about, right? Ending up where you want to be. I used to think it was funny. Roadrunner, the coyote's after you. Roadrunner. Now, I'm mainly tired. Not that you'd ever know. I mean, I can still make the horizon in two shakes of a snake's tongue. But it never gets easier out here alone with Mr. Big Teeth and his Acme supplies. Leg muscle vitamins, tiger traps, instant tornado seeds. Come on, I'm no tiger. And who's making all this stuff? I can't help being a little uneasy. I do one of my tricks, a rock scorching razor turn at 600 miles an hour and he falls off the cliff. The coyote, he really falls. I see the small explosion, his body slamming into dry dirt. So far down in the canyon, the river looks like a crayon doodle. That has to hurt, right? Five seconds later, he's just up the highway hoisting a huge anvil above a little yellow dish of bird feed, like I don't see what's going on. You know how sometimes, even though you're very serious about the things you do, it seems like secretly there's a big joke being played and you're a part of what someone else is laughing at, only you can't prove it, so you keep sweating and believing in your career as if that makes the difference, as if playing along isn't really playing along, as long as you're not sure what sort of fool you're being turned into, especially if you're giving it 100%. So. When I see dynamite tucked under the Acme Roadrunner cupcakes, as long as I don't wonder why my safety isn't coming first in this situation, as long as I don't think me and the coyote are actually working for the same people, as long as I eat and get away, I'm not really stupid, right? I'm just fast. Yeah, love that ending too. Great poem again by Tim Siebels. That was a commercial break 
Roadrunner, Uneasy. Uh, what a, a lot of persona poems that you do too, Tim. And and that's one of the things I just always love about your work. I was excited to have you on because you have so much variety in what you do. And the persona poems are one of those things that that the variety comes through with. Um, you know, the the poems on Blade, the comic book hero, and things like that. Um, what is it that draws you to that persona poem? Um, you know, is it it seems interesting to me because it could be a way to connect. We're always trying to find wider on audiences for poetry. And it, is it that part of it to connect with people who might not read poetry, but, but read, you know, other things, or is it more personal? Do you think? Well, you know, it's, I mean, I always want people to love poetry. I mean, I'm a poet, of course, but I'm just saying poetry has been really helpful to me. I mean, Sitting with poems, thinking through poems, feeling a way into poems has helped me be a, a more complete human being. So I believe in poetry as a as a way as a way into the world, you know. Um, so when I'm writing, I'm mostly writing because I've I've been moved by something like I grew up watching cartoons religiously, especially the Roadrunner and the Coyote. I watch every Saturday morning, the Roadrunner, no, the, the the Bugs Bunny Roadrunner Hour. It was on for an hour. They had Bugs Bunny cartoons and Roadrunner cartoons. <laughs> I I don't know if I missed one of those Saturdays in five years. I don't know, I saw that stuff, I was in there. And so I was unaware of the possible allegorical implications of the Roadrunner and the Coyote when I was a little kid. I just was mesmerized by those stories. It was funny. There was that slapstick craziness that always went on. Uh, but as I got older, just on the on a lark, I watched a series of Roadrunner Coyote cartoons. Just I think there was a video or something in a video store. And I said, oh, I used to love this. And I didn't have anything to do. And I said, I'll just watch a series of them. And I thought, oh, man, they're talking about lots of things in this with this cartoon. This is not to say you can't just enjoy it as a cartoon. But man, the allegorical implications. I mean, as an adult, when I was watching it, they screamed at me, you know. And so I was moved to write because of that. Um, I, I don't think I've ever written a poem because I thought more people would like the poems, in my mind, I mean, and I may be deluded, of course, if you write a good poem, people are going to like it. <laughs> I mean, so you don't have to really look for ways to make people like poetry. Just write a good poem. And if you're if your feet are on the ground and you're speaking the language that is shared by your fellow citizens, I mean, for the most part, we of course, there are people I will never reach, of course. But if you're speaking a language that is accessible, I think, man, you can write about almost anything. And people will be drawn to it because I think there's there's something really compelling about clarity. Mm -hmm. Because so much of our daily lives are just a muddle of getting through one thing, going to another. Very little time to reflect mm -hmm. on what it is to be your own self, you know? So so I just I just like to write and in terms of variety i just like all kinds of things you know it's like i've never felt like i had to write in one mood or about one particular subject and i mean I, part of the what drew me to, to to the art of writing was the freedom in it mm -hmm. i mean why should i not 
write everything, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love that, too. The, the clarity, of course, is one of the central things we care about at Rattle, too. And, and one of the things uh, I think is, is sort of right up there with it is truth. It's sort of an honesty that we're looking for in this world of bullshit, you know? That's why I think poetry is never going to die. Absolutely. Because... Um, there's so much just nonsense and, and lies everywhere. And, and poetry are you. these moments of sort of articulated truth. Absolutely. Uh, is that something that you sort of are actively seeking as you're writing? Is it truthfulness? Is that what a voice means, would you say, when you're well, finding that? It's interesting that you ask. I'm not sure. I mean, certainly it's not a conscious thing. Like, I would not, for example, say to you, I was writing this morning, seeking the truth of, you know, I wouldn't say that. But I think um, a search for the truth undergirds all serious writing. We all want to know what we really think. We all want to say what we really mean, not partly mean, but what we really mean. Um, We all want to to explore our minds uh, in a way that reflects, I think, the broadest sense of our own consciousness you know so i think i think truth is necessarily a part of that you know what i mean i think when i'm writing even when i'm writing something wild like a persona poem in the voice of the roadrunner i'm still trying to get at something that is true it can be an emotional truth it can be a, a socio-political truth um or it can just it can be a personal truth a sense of one's own uh, anxiety about being made a fool of by societal imperatives. Mm-hmm. I mean, there can be that, right? But you'd like to think that maybe the truths in po- the, the truths in poetry operate on many levels, you know. So some of what I, I mean, I write because I love to write. But of course, I also love the idea that poems can be part of a larger discourse between myself and the people with whom I share the, the present time. I mean, in 100 years, none of us are going to be here. We, were, we would have this. These are some things that were buzzing in my head during the 20th and 21st century. Mm-hmm. In 100 years, if someone's reading any of my poems, great. But there's, it's wildly unlikely. <laughs> but you hope that, that by then that maybe other people will, you know, they'll be building, even unknowingly building on what the things we tried to do in 2020. Or they mm-hmm. like, you know, there'll be something about what we tried to do that they try, they're also trying to do because we're people. Everyone's a, people are trying to say the thing that's essential. That will always be the case of poetry, like you were saying. Well, we're uh, a good way through the show. We haven't really talked about Voodoo Libretto, which is your yeah. newest, you know, full length book. We have a really amazing chapbook we'll talk about in a minute, too. But I love um, the title, is one of the greatest titles um, that uh, I've come across Voodoo Libretto. Um, there's just something so. I mean, you know, the, the the clash of different styles and different f- feelings and moods is like so present in that title, which makes you think of both, you know, Hendrix and the opera, which is a kind of good mashup for, for what your poems do. Um, yeah. How did you come up with that title? And what was it like putting together the new and selected book? Oh, man. Well, I'll try. I'll try. Not, I'll try not to talk really long time. Um, Hendrix, um, the other picture that I have in my wallet since high school is the picture of Jimi Hendrix. He was a huge figure and remains a huge figure in the way I think about the usefulness and and the real meaning of what artists are trying to do. Um, And so he's, I have thought about Hendrix probably every day since I was 12. You know, my brother played a a electric ladyland uh, for me when I was 12. He was 
was 17 years older. And even as a little kid, when I heard Voodoo Child, I thought, there's something about that. And and I, I was kind of scared by it, <laughs> which I think about now and I kind of laugh. But when my brother wasn't home, I would sneak back down this, into the basement where the record player was, and I'd play Voodoo Child and just listen to it. And before I knew it, I was a full-blown Hendrix freak, you know? Um, uh, and so I love the idea of having him, you, uh, you, I, I mean, I know you couldn't have read that whole, that whole thing, but uh, there are several references to Hendrix um, uh, throughout that, uh, the new and selected. And a libretto is like a long, um, a long written song, right? Opera, right? And so I thought, well, voodoo, because voodoo is also kind of a mystical African spirituality involves, you know, that. And libretto, because that book is a long song. So that's how it came together for me. And I, I, but as much as the meaning, the sound drew me to it too. I just love the sound of voodoo libretto. I just love that sound, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's what that's where uh, the title comes from. I wanted to make a, a very straightforward gesture regarding my love and admiration um, for, for Jimi Hendrix, uh, and also, you know, there's so many other things, of course, that I love and, and that are in that book. But I wanted that in there, and the, the idea of a libretto being a long, you know, vocal piece. I just thought it was kind of. They, like those words were made to be together, you know. Mm -hmm. And what um, was it like, like putting together, like going through your old books? Uh, did you find, yeah. you know, I think, I mean, I can't imagine it because I don't have you know that many books. <laughs> but uh, but going back, I imagine like there's some things you forgot that you wrote even looking back at like the earlier books. Was that the case? And did you find well, things that you that surprised you looking back that you didn't think you liked as much as you realize you do now later or, or vice versa? Was it was it interesting in that way? Well, I didn't, well, I never came across a poem that I didn't remember writing. Now, that I did not, I did not have that experience. But, of course, there are poems in the early books that I haven't read aloud or looked at, you know, in years and years and years. And so there was a kind of, for minutes anyway, there was a kind of sense of, of, of encountering a younger version of yourself in verse. And I really, I really loved that, actually. Um... The hardest thing about putting such a book together is what to leave out. Hmm. Because, of course, I, you know, I love my poems, you know what I mean? You know, I, for better and for worse, you know, just you write them, you think, I love this thing. I think it's got something in it, you know. But, you know, of course, I'm aware that there are more some poems that have more resonance or, or, or perhaps more worthy of an audience than others, I suppose. So, but it was tough to leave things out. And, and of course, over the last couple of years since uh, Voodoo Libretto's been out, I've had people say to me, oh man, I was thinking such and such was gonna be in here. You know, and I'm like, oh man, you know, maybe it should have been in there. <laughs> you know, I didn't know, you know, so that was the hard thing. So I put about 15 poems from each book, 14 to 16 poems from each book um, in there, and then, um, then of course, the new and selected section, um, the new section rather. And um, man, you know, there's a lot of pieces that are just—they're not in there. And of course, I look at the book still, and I think, oh, maybe I should have put that rather than that. You know, <laughs> so I don't know, man. It was exciting to put it together to get a sense 
of how, how many years I've been writing and, and to get a sense of how I've, I've been traveling in poetry, how I've been traveling in my mind and how, of course, the, the, the poems get complex differently as I, as I gotten older. Um, I still love some of the poems in the first book. I mean, I love all the poems, but um, for different reasons. But, uh, but in the first book, you know, I, I couldn't write poems like that. I don't think exactly anymore. I'm not sure I'm that kind of writer anymore. There are things about them I love, but I think my mind just works differently in terms of composition, the way I imagine composition. But, uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was exciting to see, to get a sense of how you've grown or, or how the gears have shifted in your mind, mm-hmm. um, how, how the world weighs more and more heavily on us as we get older for, yeah. for a number of reasons, you know? Do you, do so, you feel like the same person? Like, you know, I mean, there's that whole thing about how our cells change every, you know, seven years, we're totally regenerated, kind of reincarnated yeah. throughout life, you know? Did you feel like you were reading somebody's poems, uh, you know, that, that wasn't quite you, that was a, a different sort of version of you, maybe? Or did you feel still connected to that poet from... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because I could see the links, even to the in the first book, I can see the links to that, to what I'm doing now. I could see that. Um, as I said, I, I don't think I could write those poems now, but I see the links. I see the roots of a lot of what I do now in those poems. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, yeah, absolutely. I feel like the same person. I'm just an older version of that person. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, uh, I should say now, if anybody has any questions for Tim, of course, leave them in the chat windows. Uh, we've got a couple already on YouTube or Facebook, and I can pass them along. And do click the like button if you haven't yet. We've got about twice as many listeners as likes. So uh, that always helps the poetry randomly pop up on the sidebar. So click the like button if you haven't yet. Uh, let's see another poem, Tim. Uh, what's next? All right. Let me read. Um, let me read Naive. Why not? Read Naive. Um, this has also has an epigraph. Um, uh, a friend of mine uh, is a photographer. Well, actually, my, my great beloved <laughs> uh, uh, is a photographer. And she was traveling in Amish country, which also there are Mennonites there and other people. And this, and she somehow met this woman who was a Mennonite, and the woman said something that you would never hear from those of us who grew up in the cities. Um, the lady said, and this is the epigraph, I love you, but I don't know you. <laughs> I, just, I just thought that just, that just floored me when she told me about that. So this poem is called Naive. When I was seven, I walked home with Derek DeLarge, my arm slung over his skinny shoulders after school sun buffing our lunchboxes. So easy, that gesture, so light, the kind of love that lands like a leaf. It was 1963. We were two black boys whose snaggle-toothed grins held a thousand giggles. Remember, remember wanting to play all the time as if that was why we were born? Those hands that bring us shouting into this life must open like a fanfare of big band horns. 
though this world is nothing like where we'd been, we come anyway, astonished, as if to Mardi Gras in full swing. There must be a time when a child's heart builds a chocolate sunflower while katydids burnish the day with their busy, busy wings. This itching fury that holds me now, this knowing the early welcome that once lived inside me was somehow sent away. How I talk myself back into all the regular disguises, but still walk these streets believing in the weather of the unruined heart. My friends, with crow's feet edging their eyes, keep looking for a kinder city, though they don't want to seem naive. When was the last time you wrapped your arm around someone's shoulder and walked him home? Yeah, another beautiful poem that was Naive by Tim Siebels. Um, yeah, another great poem. Um, I think that one, too, is from v- uh, Voodoo Libretto, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and also, know. You know, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I'm not sure either. I was, <laughs> I was trying to keep track, and I lost track. So, <laughs> I'm but, losing track, too. <laughs> yeah, but I love the poems you sent. You know, I should mention, I should have mentioned already that you're a Rattle Poetry Prize finalist uh, in the current issue of Rattle. And that poem, Ants, and then there was another poem in there, too. Um, I just loved, and then it was one of those really fun unve- unraveling, kind of un- unveiling, <laughs> revealing things where you open up the name and you're like, oh, that's Tim Siebel's. That's so cool. <laughs> so I'm glad to finally publish it, Tim. Um, and the other thing you sent that was so cool is this Something Like We Do, which is a limited edition chapbook uh, from Catapult Press. Um, a very interesting concept to this little book. <laughs> and I was very surprised by it. Um, <laughs> I wasn't sure what to quite make of it reading through. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about Something Like We Did? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I have I have always, you know, enjoyed science fiction, of course, you know, from the time I was very young. And I'm very interested in who else might be in the universe with us. Um, I've done a lot of reading, and I think one of the things that people pretty quickly forget is that our solar system is a tiny little part of our galaxy. And the galaxy (laughs) is gigantic and is a tiny little part (laughs) of the universe. And I think the idea that there's nobody else in the whole universe just strikes me as insane. You know, it's it's so vast, you know. Um, and, uh, And so, I'm sitting by uh, in this courtyard. I often write outdoors when the weather's nice. There's a courtyard by the museum uh, here, the Chrysler Museum, a lovely museum, very nice courtyard, very quiet, beautiful big tree under which I sit. Right. Uh, and uh, I heard this line. They were amazed that we still tried to build cities. The the way we might be surprised that birds can build nests without hand. 
that that entire phrase came. Mm-hmm. I mean, oh, sentence wow. came to me, and I thought, who who's who's amazed? <laughs> who is who's amazed that we try to build cities? And then suddenly I thought, it's the it's the visitors. They're they're coming and looking at how we are trying to live, and they just think, wow, <laughs> these guys, <laughs> they don't know what they're doing, you know? And so I started writing the first poem, something like we did, and I, I guess I could read it if you want. Um, I thought that was the whole thing. I thought, that's it, right? And then I said, they might have other things that they would like us to know. <laughs> and. Pretty soon, <laughs> there was a whole series of poems in which the speaker of the uh, of the of the the poems were in, in various ways interacting with these aliens, um, and we find out in the poem that they they were the people who started life on this planet. They started life, and now they've returned to see how things have gone. You know, and. Uh, I, I mean, I, there's much more going on than that, but I can't just tell everyone everything. Uh, but I just, I don't know, I just got wrapped up in this idea that these beings would come, would be here, and they would, you know, walk around and be interacting with us in ways that, you know, would show us in some ways perhaps just how ridiculous we are, you know, killing each other and, you know, allowing such suffering to be in the world and cultivating any number of prejudices mm-hmm. against people of different faiths, different skin colors, because their sexuality is different. And they would be saddened deeply <laughs> that this is what we had come to. And so I was, I was really just let myself be swept up in the idea of what would it be like to have interacted with such beings? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's what the book, that the book is really me just, you know, working out some of these ideas that how would we appear to an intelligence that was far older, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about this sometimes and I, I, I can ramble like a madman, as you've already probably realized. Um, but people often forget also that the insects that are on Earth are far older than we are in terms of their presence. And so it always tickles me when people, you know, consider insects pests. Like, if we really think about it, we're the pests. <laughs> we're the ones who came in and started messing up everything and putting them in this place and spraying them with raid and all this stuff, you know. They were here probably a couple hundred million years before we showed up and so but they're the pests you know what i mean and so and i think about that like the intelligence that allowed these these insects to survive for hundreds of millions of years and we don't we don't think about that we don't think about what is that intelligence that they have i mean ants you probably know this too ants outnumber human beings probably ten thousand to one on earth Mm-hmm. We never think about that. They're here. <laughs> They're all around us all the time. But we just regard them, oh, don't let them in the kitchen. I don't like ants on my counter. It's like, they're they're all over the place, you know? And uh, 
And that goes for, of course, many other kinds of insects. But what I was fascinated by the idea that there are all gradations of intelligence. And we are, I think, a pretty amazing species, human beings. But there are probably much older beings that are on our continuum who would see and understand things that we aren't even beginning to, to grasp. I was thinking about this, and I'm, I'm going to stop after this, Tim, because I know you're, you're going to just cut my mic off. <laughs> but we've had electricity for about, what, 120 years, 140 years? Mm -hmm. And look what we've done in 140 years. I am now speaking to you through a computer. This is insane. In my lifetime, this would have been sci-fi. When I was 15, this would have seemed like science fiction, like fantasy, right? Imagine, if you will, <laughs> a species that's had electricity for 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. what, would they, what would they be doing <laughs> with that? How far could they have extended their sensibility? Anyway, that's it. I'm not saying another word. But that, but that was the, the energy that was driving this whole, this whole, this crazy book about uh, about uh, the possibility of another intelligence visiting us. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's hear this poem. Let, let's do uh, something like we did. All uh, right. The the title poem. I mean, there's there's five uh, five versions of it. Or five it throughout the yeah. book. Well, let's yeah. do the first one now. Maybe we'll do another one too before we go. Sure, but the first one, first one will give people a sense of what you know what I've been trying to do with this book, um, with this uh, this series. Um, each of the poems, I should say, uh, has an has an epigraph by a different black composer, many of whom talked about space, and I thought that's interesting too. And uh, so this is uh, this one. This is the first something like we did, and the, it has an epigraph from Sun Ra, the great kind of completely revolutionary jazz artist, um, the late Sun Ra. He is gone now, and he had this song. Uh, this song called "Space Is the Place," and if you you can look it up too on YouTube, put in Sun Ra, "Space Is the Place," and you'll hear hear what he's doing. Really out there. Something like we did. You could tell they were surprised that we still tried to build cities. The way you and I might be amazed that birds can build nests without hands. They saw how we lived and made a sound like rain sifting a river. For a lot of us, knowing we were not alone brought relief from the headache that had lasted all our lives. Of course, some people were scared. The religious held on to their books, claiming this was all make-believe, even when it was undeniable. The 61 ships stacking light in the clouds Emerald green at dawn, lavender in late afternoon, the engines nearly quiet as if the sky were breathing. They walked something like we did, but the right foot stepped twice for each step of the left. So it appeared they were either testing the ground or considering a dance. Their skin was dark, but transparent. Their hearts like ours, but visible. 
And when the military began to mobilize, all the big weapons turned into barrels of wine. And whatever we tried with knives or guns, we somehow ended up doing to ourselves until it seemed insane, even to us. Each time one of them spoke, it was like a piano if Cecil Taylor were playing. Voices bending the air the way chimney swifts swoop, half turn, sling back. But after a while, when they watched us, their lips shimmered and something long ago closed their eyes as if we were a memory of who they once had been. And they'd come to earth to prove their existence and mark the promise of another world, someplace we might actually go if we could see inside ourselves and trace what was there. Yeah, that's a beautiful poem. Something like we did. Um, it's beautiful taking a topic like that and turning it into such great poetry. Um, <clears throat> and I, I just, I just love it too. I've always been a fan of, of science fiction and the paranormal too. Have you ever seen a, a UFO or anything you couldn't explain? Yeah, well, I have, in fact, but n- n- I've never seen any beings <laughs> from from them. But yeah, once uh, once long ago, I was I was out I was out very late at night. I was in Texas, uh, in one of the suburbs of Texas uh, of Dallas, rather. And uh, I was I parked my car and I was walking up the up the sidewalk. I was getting ready to walk up the sidewalk to the house where I was staying, and I saw a small object, probably the size of a softball sitting in the grass, spinning and glowing. Wow. And, and, I, and, I, and I stared at it for a while, and I, but I got a little nervous. I wasn't sure what I was looking at. And so I watched it, and it went dark. <laughs> and then, and then I, I went over to where I, I thought I saw it, and there was nothing there. <laughs> and I was stone cold sober. <laughs> you know, I wasn't like I was hallucinating. I was half out of my mind with whiskey. You know, wasn't anything like that. I was stone cold sober, and I thought, hmm. And the next morning, you know, I went, I went back. You know, I woke up and walked over and looked mm-hmm. at that yard where it was, and I didn't see any sign of anything. And I thought, hmm. and I just kind of shrugged and thought, well, maybe it was a trick of the light or yeah. something. But it was a, but. To my recollection, it was a small globe, and it was spinning hmm. in the grass, just spinning. And it was this light that was flickering, spinning. And, you know, I was hoping I'd go back the next day, and it would be like a water sprinkler. And I'd say, oh, it was a sprinkler. It was just off or something, you know, something, mm-hmm. you know. But it didn't look like a sprinkler, if I'm honest. It looked like a small globe. <laughs> and so that's as close as I've come to saying, was that something from somewhere else, you know? But I don't know. I yeah, no yeah, there's a magic when those kind of experiences show up. I had I had one of them myself where I was watching a movie and looked oh, out yeah. the window and there was a light hovering through the trees. Wow. And I was like, what is that? And, I, and we live in a, a, you know, mountainous wildfire kind of area. So I was like, oh, I hope that's not a helicopter like looking for a fire, which happens a lot. And it was like yeah. late September in California. And uh, I went outside in the deck to look at it and it was just completely silent and then shot straight up in the air. 
so it like shrunk and shrunk till I couldn't see it. Amazing. And, uh, and then Amazing. there's all these, uh, there's a whole record of it on our town message boards. So you go back to that date and everybody, there's like a dozen people saw it, had no idea what it was. Amazing, Probably well, some kind of, you know, military thing, but who the heck knows? Yeah. And I just possible. love that there's mystery in the world, you know, there's oh, so much yeah. room for yeah. it. And we kind yeah, of go too. through our lives. Me you know, too. and there's so much mundane in our lives. You know, there's so much like, what am I going to have for dinner? Am I going right. to, you know, avoid the Bills game score right. for as long right. as I can so I can enjoy it later? Right. <laughs> like right. all those kind of things. Meanwhile, we're this tiny little speck on this tiny little rock in this tiny little solar system with right. so much more possibility going on. Even things we can't oh, see. Yeah. So yeah. that's why I love this book. It was so fun to read. Too, and too, the way you set it up, because um, you know, I think you've kind of revealed that it's uh, – that it's sort of another persona poem, but for mm-hmm. reading it, you don't really know that at first. Cause right, right. You well, get into it with that idea. preface. Yeah, that's It's fun. supposed to feel like a journal. And, but, you know, of course, you know, I mean, eventually people will, will probably think this is an invention, right? This is not nonfiction, you know? So, but it was funny. I, a friend of mine, uh, a guy read it and said, cause I had placed it, you were, as you recall in the introduction in Southeast Virginia, and he said, I was reading about a particular phenomenon that happened in, in this area some years ago. Is that what you're referring to? Hmm. And I, I had never heard of it in my life. You know, I was just inventing this place, you know. And so I, I hope it, it feels like a possible, like it could be a dream. It could be. Um, a series of actual recollections of an experience. But I think with, with I mean, if someone reads it and rereads it, they probably would get a sense that I'm, you know, composing a, a world, a, a possible world moment. Um, but that's not, you know, I, I, I would hesitate to say, no, it literally is true. That would that would be, uh, be quite the leap. <laughs> well, maybe you get it for marketing, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. So uh, I want to ask too. You know, this is tonight is happens to be the Rattle Chapbook Prize deadline, and the fact that this is a chapbook is interesting too. It's a beautifully done chapbook, I should say, by uh, Catapult Press again, and just yeah. great. Uh, it's a limited edition chapbook, so it's really great care was put in. It looks like hand stitched binding. Yes. And, yeah. It's uh, a tiny like little a press. Kind of cover. Yeah. It's a beautiful. What made you yeah. decide to publish the book that way? What? And it's not the first time you've published a chapbook. Uh, what is it that you like about chapbooks? Well, I wanted this that book to be only that about that that experience, only that. You know, I didn't want anything else in there, and I thought it'd be perfect to put it in just a small thing. And, and a guy I know here in uh, Norfolk, Virginia, ha- has a small press, and he says, "Hey, man, I would love to do." He had said to me at various times, "I would, I would love to do, you know, something of yours, like." A small book of yours or some kind and I thought here it is this is exactly what I what I what, what I, it seems to be ordered for a small press for it. so so he made I think like 60 copies of it and, and maybe we do another set sometime but right now there's just a few left you know yeah. um but I just love the idea that it would just be a few things and people would have it and some people would enjoy it and you know and and some people read it and think, God, this dude is crazy, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, man, I just thought it would be nice to have a just to have a collection that was simply about the encounter between these beings from a very distant galaxy and and us, this very young species, because people forget we are really young 
as a, as a kind of creature. And we are not anywhere near, you know, finished with our potential. And I, and that also gives me some hope, even though things look pretty bleak right now. Yeah. Well, it's just, it's, it was a pleasure. I'm honored to have a copy and it was a pleasure just to read because it was so surprising and then fun. And then it turns in toward, you know, the, the political and social concerns a lot of your work addresses too yeah. through that lens. Yeah. So it's a really, yes. really interesting project. I loved it. Well, thank you. Thanks a lot. I always think, I always worry that people are going to think I'm just crazy or something. So <laughs> well, I appreciate well, that. Well, same you... here, I guess, but that's the case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so let's close out. I want to take up more of your time, but, you know, we're running out. Do you want to read one more poem uh, from this book or from something? else what do you want to well, I'll tell you what with? you know what the, the newest poem I've written is that one the poem had started to believe it's one of those poems in which the poem itself is a character this is a the, it has an epigraph of by Danny Solis who was a great spoken word poet you can find probably find him on YouTube too he was a friend of mine and he passed away very suddenly uh last fall and uh I had been talking to him like Ten days before he he just died, he went to bed one night and just didn't wake up. Hmm. And uh, but he was a great spoken word artist, and one of his poems was was a um, uh, imagined him in in conversation with Che Guevara, and uh, and one of the last lines, if not the last line of the poem, is spoken by Guevara, and he says, "Welcome to the revolution, Cabron," meaning. Cabron is not a flattering term, you know, it's a, probably like, you know, you, you idiot or you ass or whatever. Um, and uh, that's from Danny's. And so I thought, here's a poem, here's a poem in which the, some something revolutionary is, is being contemplated. Uh, best I can say it. I'll just let the poem do the work. Anyway, so this is, again, a poem in which the poem itself is a character. The poem had started to believe that what's wrong with the world cannot be fixed, cannot be stopped, no matter what the poem proposes, no matter how hard the poem sweats. The sky swims with crocodiles. Every day the daylight shrinks like a cheap shirt. Nothing fits, the poem mutters. I do not fit in this world. Imagine an octopus in a t-shirt, a brontosaurus in skinny jeans, the poem's brain, a firestorm crammed into a snow globe. I came here for grasshoppers, for gingerbread and the mellow smell of cedar, for love with all its soulful incantations, for poetry, preemptive, impolite, polyphonic, and for kisses, latent, lavish, salacious, kisses, long as an opera. But what do I get? Chronic stupidity, bad religions, and bigotry by the boatload. Half the world worked to death, the other half hungry, politicians bouncing on the laps of lobbyists while the rich try to stifle their giggles. I have put up and the poem smacks its head, its, its hair nappy and matted, its fingernails cracked. The poem had studied the rules, 
applied for better verbs, maintained its soft growl of restrained aggravation, that spritz of semi-ecstatic wonder. But now it knows. It's just a minstrel show, a silly soft shoe, jazz hands, obsequious and degrading. They treat us like fluff, the poem sneers, like the dandruff of the headless. What's with all this backbiting about big time publication? I remember my first lines, the sharp tang of truth on my tongue, the shuffle of days before they were named. Who hogtied me to these pages? I am the child of pagans and poltergeists, of Zulus and the Comanche. I am the soul's paella, all the moans of every Friday night. You who have paved this stolen land, played this broken story, poured this comfy quicksand for the heart, beware. I was not born to make peace with you or for your sake. It's time the people knew, time the spirits scrambled for the wind to remember and the fists to sing. I dream with red ants and wolves, with clownfish and corn snakes. I am better weather and bright wings for Gaza, for Southside, Southside Chicago, Cheyenne River, and the Sahel. As prophesied by no one, I have risen again like a welt after the lash, like a dandelion from the forehead of a cyclops, like a horde of locusts after the field is bare. Go tell it. Uh, what a great poem to close on. That was the poem that started to believe. Uh, Tim Siebel, thanks so much for being a guest. Really, it's been a pleasure talking to you and so much fun going through your books this weekend. I uh, really enjoyed it and uh, really glad to have you here. A real pleasure, Tim. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your interest in what I try to do as a, as a, as a poet. And uh, it's lovely to be uh, connected to Rattle. And I've always admired what was in those pages. And I'm just grateful. Well, yeah, grateful you too. Don't be a stranger. Uh, have a great night. Oh. All right, pal. Yep. Take care. That was Tim Siebel's reading from his new and selected book, Voodoo Libretto, which you can find at EtruscanPress.org and his chapbook, Something Like We Did, from Catapult Press. For the full episode, including the prop lines and poet respond, visit YouTube.com slash Rattle Poetry. 